1: Welcome to the Rings of Power Lorecast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth, I'm John,
2: And I am but a weary traveler come from the Southlands. I've heard great tales of a podcast here in the Northeast Kingdom, and I've come to offer you my gifts. Oh my god, who, oh my, Eru, <laughs> who are you? Eru, Ah, yes, John, I'm back. It is I, David. Back from my travels.
1: That's very exciting. Yeah how were tr- how were your travels, David?
2: They were great. Uh, they were long. They were uh, busy, uh, but uh, everyone came back alive and very happy, and uh, we had a really great time. And so uh, I was very glad to take the trip, And I'm also glad to be home. Very nice. By the way, great job on the podcast while I was away. I just I was following along as I could and watching the episodes, and yeah, you really you really kept it uh, kept it. Kept it going really well. I was really impressed with uh, your podcast skills.
1: Well, much appreciated, David, but we did miss you tremendously. Um, you. I missed you especially because I count on you to stop me
2: from rambling <laughs> to these people. Yeah, especially when you and Aaron go on, on some sort of lore, uh, you know, like a Dogs with Bones. We could go like six hours. Yeah. If, if, if,
1: between me and Aaron and me and Marilyn. Marilyn, Oh boy. Yeah. We're going to have a week-long podcast here.
2: Yeah, we're going to have a note about that in uh, the upcoming uh, segments here. And in fact, maybe that's a good segue. Um, I guess uh, this is our lore cast for the uh, season finale of The Rings of Power, uh, Season 1, Episode 8,
1: Alloyed. In this episode, we have four segments. First, we've got programming notes about what's next for the Lorehounds. Then we have our hot takes for Episode 8.
2: After that, we have our lore dive into Sauron, the Rings of Power, and the Istari. Lastly, we've got a listener feedback segment.
1: Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to SecondAge@Baldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode, which at this point will be our season wrap-up, so uh, be sure to get your final takes into us before Friday the 21st to get those included. And if you want to keep talking Tolkien, join us on the Bald Move Discord. Link in the description below and at baldmove.com.
2: Don't forget to subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, uh, in your podcast application of choice to get all our content about the Rings of Power and other upcoming shows. More about that in a moment. And if you do have a moment, please rate and review our podcast because it really helps us um, come up in the rankings and to have other people find it. All right, John, we've nearly come to the end of our time with the Rings of Power. We've got uh, one more episode to record, and that is going to be our season wrap-up podcast, which will air on Monday, October 24th.
1: Yeah, um, I'm excited to wrap up the season. I'm sad to wrap up the season. Um, I'm excited to talk to Marilyn Pukila again, though, because she's going to be on that season wrap-up podcast, and we're going to talk about some big themes from the season. We're going to follow up on some of our speculation from our uh, midseason interview, and uh, we're so looking forward to having her there.
2: Yeah, that's going to be a, a good one. Be prepared for a long episode <laughs> once we get that recorded. Um... You know, so thinking a, a little bit now about our future, you know, we've we had a lot of fun with this uh, podcast. It kind of started as a as a lark, as a discord message, um, <laughs> just to, hey, John, what are you doing? You want to do some lore stuff? And boom, we had a podcast. And our, our reception to the podcasting world has been, uh, I, I don't know, I couldn't have ever expected the positivity that we've received. So that means we're going to keep going. Um We've made hints about our future plans, but let's talk more specifically about exactly what those plans are.
1: Yeah, so after the season wrap-up podcast, a week later, uh, we're going to start our coverage of The White Lotus, which is premiering on October 30th. And that'll be on HBO. You can follow us with that. That's a limited series. It's an anthology series, so if you miss season one, you can jump in for season two with no problem. Uh, There's seven episodes, and we'll be doing full coverage with a recap and a deep dive into that every single week. Um, We're also going to do Wheel of Time when it comes back, but we have no clue when that's coming back. Uh, They have not given us any information about that timing. We're thinking probably in 2023, maybe early. Um, But we also have another show that is basically a surprise to me, too, because uh David was, was uh messaging me from the Misty Mountains and he said, John, Ondor is so good that we just can't pass it up. So, David, you are victorious. We are going to cover Ondor uh at least three episodes. We're gonna do at least a mid-season, so this coming Wednesday, two days after this comes out. Uh and after that, we're going to do probably an episode for each arc. So every three episodes after that. So that'll be after episode six, nine, and 12.
2: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad uh, you got on board. Um, you were at me for a long time about Wheel of Time. So, you know, I feel <laughs> like we're, we're balancing our scales here. But I have to say that... As much as I'm enjoying House of the Dragon, which is killing it right now, like it is, the writing on that show is so good, but it's also very dark. Mm -hmm. And as much as we're loving Rings of Power, I I am more, I have to be honest here, I'm more excited for an episode of Andor than either of these other two shows. But maybe that's because I'm a little bit more sci-fi inclined, Um, and I love a good noir detective spy type thriller.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge Star Wars person generally. I I mean, I like the hits. I I have fun seeing the big blockbusters, but I don't go deep into that lore. I'm not big on the series uh, that have been on Disney Plus, but this one has been really excellent so far, and uh, so I'm really excited to talk about that with you. Uh, We have we have a new theme song coming, so uh, get hyped for that.
2: (laughs) And you know, we're gonna keep publishing under the Bald Move Network. You'll find that podcast just on our Firehose feed. But um, because of a number of weird technical details and how podcasts are published, we have decided that we're going to launch our own Patreon. Mm. Yes, new news. And one of the things that we're going to be able to do there is offer ad-free podcasts. So if you feel like you'd like to have our content, but without all the ads that we uh, produce on the regular show, then we'll have a place for you on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we got into this, you and I, because we love Tolkien and because we wanted to talk about it and just have fun with the community and we've been we've been really grateful for the feedback we've gotten and part of that feedback has been how do I get your episodes ad free? Yeah. So, this is our response to that. You know, we didn't we didn't come in to to start a Patreon, but it seems like the demand is out there, so here we go.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's the podcasting publishing world is kind of weird and technical platforms and advertising and how you monetize, you know, how do you track the monetization of all of these things? It gets really messy. And so in our conversations with Jim and Aaron over at the Bald Move Network, we were trying to figure things out so that it's fair and equitable for everyone. And the most important thing is, is that people who are listening to us, can listen to us, and you can listen to us in whatever way that you want. For some people, ads are just like a real sour note kind of thing, and for other people, it doesn't bother them at all. So we just want to be able to offer everyone the best of what we got in the way that it works for them. And I know one of the tricky things is that, at least with the Patreon platform, we can't subdivide our feeds Um with a lot of accuracy, so it's kind of a firehose feed, but we're going to make sure that w- our titles and tags and things like that are really clear so that, you know, you can filter out or, you know, you can just as you're scanning the your feed in your podcast app, you can just go, oh, it's that show and I can just skip it.
1: Yeah, we're going to be doing some organization this week to make sure that everything is clear both on our firehose feed and our Patreon feed.
2: Exactly. So uh, we'll have more news about that once we're ready to launch. Uh, we're uh, hard at work, uh, just like. Uh, well, do I do I bring in a silly Calabrimbo um, <laughs> metaphor here <laughs> about uh, beating our rings of uh, our Patreon rings into shape? Uh, I think I'll just skip. I'll leave it there.
1: <laughs> well, well, that's the point though. We can't beat our Patreon in. We we have to massage it in yes. with, the, with the, the right alloy.
2: <laughs> exactly. We have to coax it. Well, I think that <laughs> with all of those sort of Programming notes out of the way. Uh, John, it's time for some hot takes. So let's hear it. What's your summation for this episode of television?
1: My takes are less hot this week okay. than they All were right. last week. Because last week, if you listened last week, I was cranky. Because that episode was not my favorite. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. We can and we can talk more about that <laughs> on the season wrap-up. Yes. But... This episode in isolation was a really great episode of TV. Like, I, I enjoyed it as just a TV show. I enjoyed it as an homage to Tolkien. Um, I thought that they got a lot more of the themes right. And my biggest thing was, my biggest complaint was that there were no intimate moments this season, that we were missing conversations between characters making us care about them. And I feel like they nailed that this episode. You know, Elendil talking to Muriel was great. Uh, Nori's scenes were great. Uh, Galadriel and Sauron together was great. Uh, Elrond and and Galadriel were great. Where was this all season is my question. But I'm glad that we got there finally. And I hope that they see some of the feedback they're getting this season and take that into next season and start with those scenes instead of saving them for the finale. What do you think, David?
2: Yeah, um, I am in general agreement with you. I enjoyed this as an episode of television. I was entertained. I was, um, I, 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 emotion, I had emotional responses to things. And um, I, uh, I'm just really glad to, to see that they found some footing as they were bringing us in at the end of the season. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you to indulge me. Nay, maybe I'm owed this since I've been away for so long. <laughs> but I've got a few extra takes that I want to take that are a little bit more detailed. Well, I know we're not an episode reaction podcast as such, but I've got a few things that I want to dig in. So maybe uh, you'll indulge me here. <laughs> I love it. Um, first off, I want to just point out that the production design on this show continues to kick ass. This show is gorgeous from top to bottom Galadriel's dress oh my god I want to I want that dress it's, it's, it was so awesome. the design of it was incredible. the workshop they built that workshop with working gears and everything, it was gorgeous. And even though we were only on the Numenorian ships for just a moment, uh, just that design to see it at, at full sail uh, and, and just seeing the shots that we see on there, I'm just blown away at how much attention to detail and obviously money that they poured into this show. And uh, I'm just loving that aspect uh, from top to bottom. Nice.
1: Yeah, no, the production has been beautiful. We can see where that billion went.
2: (laughs) Yes, we we absolutely can. And then um, there is something that I I really want to um, point out, which is... For as much as episodes sort of five through seven were, were saggy in the middle and we had some interesting problems with pyro- pyroclastic flows. and Oh, my
1: God. I'm so sick of talking about volcanology.
2: <laughs> exactly. Who knew? Um, all of those issues aside, I want to put my finger on this, which I think a lot of people are not giving the showrunners credit for. They are weaving a rich tapestry, both visually as well as in the dialogue and the plotting that I don't see much in a lot of other shows. There's a very intentional effort at creating this weave of storytelling, both visually and and in the script, that I I haven't really seen in in many other places. And And we see it in other shows, like little bits here and there. But this show is relentless and constant in its, um, in its uh, bringing together all of these elements. And so here's just a, like, oh, I don't know, five or six different examples of this. Let's see. Gilgalad, this is a script one. Gilgalad mentions the power of one object. Like, you're going to give that much power to one object. Well, yeah, it's the one ring that's ultimately going to come down. So they're seeding that little bit right in there, right? Celebrimbor talks about the key that broke the dam. Well, where else did we see a key earlier this season, you know, with uh, – who's our friend in the Southlands there? Uh, Adar. Yeah. Well, yeah, Adar, but who was who turned the key uh, was – what's his name? Oh, uh, Waldrick. Wald, yeah, yeah uh, Waldrick. Um, so there's a couple of script notes where, like, there's there's these little things that they've they've hinted, not only just specific callbacks to say, like, power over flesh, right? We heard that in the first and then in this last episode. Um there's other visual things like um, the design of Celebrimbor's, Celebrimbor's, sorry Forge. On the front shield of it, it's very reminiscent of Halbrin's sigil. Mm. These kinds of details don't go unnoticed by by showrunners and show producers and production designers. These are very intentional choices that people are making. These are professionals who are at the top of their game. And these are things that that they're doing that I I would say are intentional. So there's that the anvil. Just looking at that overhead shot of uh, Celebrimbor's anvil, that calls right back to Salron's anvil when he w- when they were up in the North Wastelands. Right. Another thing is when um, Meteor Man and the uh, Aesthetics were having their battle. Um, all the dirt and fire motes that were floating around as they're sort of being levitated, or you know, as, as the flames were extinguished. Those are very much like the particular matter in the opening sequence, ah, right? I didn't it, think it, of that. It's calling, yeah, it's calling back to that. Or when Meteor Man is standing waiting for Nuri, he's standing under a tree that looks like one of the one trees, right? He's mm. on the hillside yeah.
1: silhouetted, right? They're definitely mirroring that shot with Finrod.
2: Oh my gosh, right? That that whole that whole tree, watch the trees, as you said in our, in our oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> prequel podcast. Uh, it's all uh, about them. All about the trees. <laughs> Um another cool thing this one just blew me away was when they were closing the forge doors. It was like chunk chunk like a little three flap deal. That's exactly like the door to go into um Casa Doom, yeah? Right? There's like a little three sort of thing that one slid, this one sort of flapped. But then like the flaps with the with the doors helmets. The eye motif in the forge as the as the molten liquid is swirling around and the, you know they're setting things on flame. So You know, all of these things, these are all intentional choices that the showrunners have to sign off on. These are things that the production designers and the set decorators and the set designers and builders are bringing forward in their production meetings. These are things that the the writers are considering as they're doing, and these are huge teams of people, right? All sort of, right. they're an orchestra, right? And and being sort of conducted by uh, the showrunners and where we heard that before, <laughs> yeah, hmm, interesting, right? <clears throat> Arugula. Um, so all of these things are are brought in, and none of them when you're on a when you're on an A level show like this. The people that are working on these shows, they're the best, at the best of the best of the best. They are the best of the craft. They have been picked. They have worked hard. They're, obviously, people are putting their, their full effort into this. And these choices are intentionally being made. And to me, that is just a mark of excellence. No matter how clunky some of the plotting is, mm-hmm. this, is this is something that's setting, to me, this show apart from a, a lot of other shows.
1: I totally agree with you, and and even through the clunkier episodes, I think that the production was shining the whole way. Yeah. Uh, so so for a certain, I I would not criticize the way that they approached the visuals, the way that they approached a lot of what you're saying. These like tiny details in the visuals. Um, at all, like like like, I have no notes for that. Keep doing what you're doing.
2: <laughs> exactly. Keep doing. Uh, ten what you're out of ten
1: on that end, um, and I just want them. I, what I want is to see a show that's written in a way that's deserving of the production level
2: that it's getting. Yes, <laughs> I agree with you, and yeah, there's some clunky plot points and some clunky writing here and there. So yeah, I think uh, I, I agree. Uh, we I I too want to see a, a show. Plot, the plotting of the show to match this production design. But there's one little thing here that I want to point out, which I thought was really nice little trick at the beginning of this episode, when the aesthetics uh, hail Lord's, you know, Meteor Man as Lord Sauron. Boom. They set a trap for us. And that trap was like, oh, damn, like Meteor Man was like Sauron all the time. Total misdirection. Who else uses misdirection and deception? Sauron. So I thought that not only this sort of plotting device, which you can use in any sort of you know uh, you know written narrative, you know uh, visual narrative. I thought that that had a nice harmony in the show as well. That the what the writers, the showrunners themselves misdirected us, and then boom, you know brought in uh, uh, Halbrand, uh, Anatar, Sauron, whatever we're going to call him later on, and all the while as the the plot was going along in this episode, we kept seeing the divergence. Wait, wait a minute, Meteor Man can't be Sauron. How can he be in two places at once? Because uh, Halbrand just says, you know, consider it a gift, right? So they're setting up this dramatic tension so that when Galadriel and Halbrand have their big scene, we're really amped up and we're really ready to uh, feel that, not only understand it, but to feel it. And I thought, wow, that was really next level writing as well in terms of how they set the trap for this plot.
1: Right. You know, if every episode were written at the level of this episode, this would be a 9 out of 10 show for me.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: So I I think that's that's my point is I I thought this show, this episode was really excellent. I hope that this is reflective of what we're going to get next season.
2: Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, my last uh, little point is um, I got very emotional when Nuri was saying goodbye. They got me, damn it. They got me with
1: the hard foots. Uh, they got you with the, the whole, don't, Mr. Frodo, don't go where I can't follow. <laughs> I, I thought that they were going to basically mirror that with Poppy. I'm kind of glad they didn't. Yeah, I'm glad they subverted that. I'm kind of glad that they uh, did not totally copy the Sam and Frodo plot line. Uh, so good for them.
2: Yeah, it was some nice member berries in there, um, yeah. and it was I, it was emotional. I think they just did a great job with the Harfoot stuff. I know you were like a Harfoot skeptic at the beginning. I think greater I was more more so than I am. But I have to say, they they totally got me with that uh, with that ending.
1: I had basically no issues with the Harfoot plotline, except if I hear our hearts bigger than our feet another time, (laughs) I'm going to scream at my TV. But other than that, I had really no problem with the Harfoot plotline, which is shocking that I went in so excited to see Numenor and I was way more invested in this non canon Harfoot thing.
2: Interesting, right? Yeah, very. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I was the same too. I think that, yeah, it's almost like the show had almost different groups of writers in charge of different storylines, because it, it felt tonally, yeah, not tonally, but just in the craft of the writing of the dialogue, it just felt very uneven between the different storylines.
1: Yeah, totally agree.
2: Yeah. Anyway, thanks for indulging me with uh, those hot takes. They were sort of uh, pent up a little bit since I, <laughs> it's been a minute since I've been in front of a proper microphone, so...
1: You haven't been able to yell like I have.
2: No, no. I just (laughs) entered the void on my own. (laughs) All right, John. now that we've got our spleens vented with our our hot takes, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to get into some deep lore questions. What do we have up for us? Yeah,
1: we've got Sauron's
2: almost redemption arc. We
1: have the Rings of Power and their forging. And then we'll get into the istari and they're coming to middle earth
2: sounds good and i think we've got a couple of other little extra notes in there so this should be a nice long segment so uh right after the break settle in and uh, we're going to get into it And we're back. John. we've got to talk about Sauron. I know we don't talk about Sauron in uh, some circles, but in this circle, we definitely have to talk about Sauron.
1: Mm, We definitely don't talk about Sauron if we're with Galadriel, because that's a trigger word for her. (laughs)
2: She was quite taken by him.
1: She was. She was. Uh, I I really liked that they had her be legitimately tempted by his offer. Uh I think that that is in character for her. I mean... You see later in The Lord of the Rings where she goes, I passed the test after she refuses the ring from Frodo. I think that this is a thing that is known to Galadriel, that she does lust for power a little bit, that she does want to rule on her own, and that she struggles with her Noldor upbringing, with her relation to Feanor and the dark deeds of the First Age. And so having her struggle with that here was a really great moment for me.
2: And talk about some really great writing and great cinematography. I mean, a real marriage of the visual and the spoken in this whole sequence with uh, Halbrand and uh, Galadriel. Uh, and, and just the little things, again, like I was pointing out that rich weave, that rich tapestry that they're weaving of like the reflection, right? And that ha- that callback to, you know, Galadriel's mirror and Lothlorien. Um and the way that they inverted things and then they did the scene changes was just really excellent storytelling. So I felt a lot of good payoff in the reveal of Sauron or Halbrand as Sauron. Yeah. Okay, so um now that we're at the end of the season here, I think it's probably okay for us to talk a little bit uh, more in depth about Sauron. And you've got here in our notes, Sauron's almost redemption arc, little air quotes there. So what is going on? Because he's talking about healing and uniting Middle-Earth when, when you know, coming out of the Jackson films, if we we're just a surface level fan, um, we're just looking at Sauron as an evil bad guy. But one of the things that I really like about what makes a good bad guy in my opinion is a bad guy who thinks that they're right. Mm-hmm. Not that they're just black, you no, know, I'm just evil and I'm just going to do evil things, but like if we look at Thanos from the MCU, you know, universe, he has a point of view that he's trying to um he thinks he's trying to save the universe. He thinks he's trying to do good. So is, you know, where is Sauron coming from with his belief that he's trying to heal Middle-earth? And that his view of ruling Middle-earth and healing Middle-earth are, in his mind, the same thing.
1: I think Sauron is a big ends justify the means person. Okay. And uh, I think that it is pretty in line with canon that he believes that Middle-earth is best when it's ordered. Okay, And that the wars of men and uh, sort of their conflicts with elves and dwarves will stop if he's in charge and is in charge of everyone and everything is ordered. Now whether you believe he's right or not <laughs> is a is a something up for debate. But I do think that Sauron believes himself to be the protagonist of this story.
2: Right. It's interesting too um you know Morgoth was a very destructive character, um, but Sauron's trying to order things. So even though and and it shows up even in his smithing right that's like right. creating something from nothing you know or taking an ore and shaping it into something so does he maybe see middle earth as uh this thing that can be forged into something that's beautiful and um uh you know of of a greater value when it's shaped as opposed to left in its natural state so there's an interesting
1: Book in the history of Middle Earth called Morgoth's Ring. Uh-huh. And it's a deceptive title because the point of the book Morgoth's Ring is that Middle Earth that, that all of Arda is Morgoth's Ring. Okay. That he's using the world as his tool to dominate men, elves, etc. Interesting. Whereas Sauron, Sauron does have a little bit of that smaller scale domination going on. Because, again, he's a lower class of this holy being.
2: Right. He's a he's a Maiar, right?
1: Right, right. He's one of the Maiar. And he, I think, does have a a little bit of a different philosophy from Morgoth, but he certainly learned a lot from him.
2: Right, right. So, let's talk about Sauron's consideration of redemption.
1: Yeah. So, there's really just a paragraph at the beginning of uh, the chapter called "Of the Rings of Power and the Third Age," which is part of the Silmarillion.
2: Silmaril- Sil- Silmarillion.
1: Yes. Sil- haven't had to do- <laughs>
2: <laughs> haven't had to do that in a while.
1: Galadriel. Galadriel. Silmarillion. Yes. Harfoot. We've we've got them. Istari. Not Ishtari. Yes. yes. It's true. It's yeah. true. All right. So there's a passage in the beginning of that chapter of the Silmarillion, which is the final chapter of the Silmarillion, where uh, which again. It's very compressed. The entire plot of Lord of the Rings is essentially two lines.
2: <laughs> In the Silmarillion, right.
1: Right. They're like, yeah, so a halfling went and uh, and destroyed the ring and everything was fine.
2: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and it was written after The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. So, Right. Right. Yeah. He must have been like, oh, I covered this stuff.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. So Sauron at the beginning of the Second Age is looking around at Middle Earth and he's like, Ooh, it's pretty bad around here, and my boss is gone. He's in the void. He's not coming back until the end of time. I don't know what to do now. I I could try to stay here and finish his work, but I'm just one of the Maiar. I I don't have one of the Valar to support me now. What do I do here? So Aeonwe is the herald of Manwe. He's sort of his number two, but he's one of the Maiar. And Aeonwe is hanging out with Sauron, and Sauron says, hey, buddy, Do you think that I could come back to Valinor and just have everyone forget about everything and and we're all cool and I can just be one of the holy ones again? And Aeonwe basically tells him, I don't have the power to tell you yes or no here because I'm one of the Maiar too. If you really want to do this, come back with me to Valinor, head to court, go on trial, and we'll let you know what you need to do to repent. Which is a fair statement, I think, is, you know, you caused all this pain in Middle Earth. We need you to own up to that pain and prove to us that you're a good person now. If you want to be one of us, so Sauron has a, a little bit of a of a uh, negative response to that, as you as you can imagine. And so, David, do you want to read that quote of his response?
2: Sure. Uh, I'll see if I can dust dust off my reading voice here. Then Sauron was ashamed, and he was unwilling to return in humiliation and to receive from the Valar a sentence. It might be. Of long servitude in proof of his good faith. For under Morgoth his power had been great. Therefore, when Yanway departed, he hid himself in Middle earth, and he fell back into evil, for the bonds that Morgoth had laid upon him were very strong.
1: So, two things here. First of all, I think you can see echoes of that line that he says to Galadriel, where he feels like a fist has been unclenched, something like that, right? Mm, yeah. Where nice. he says, you know, the fist of Morgoth has been unclenched. So I think that the showrunners here are trying to evoke this without violating their agreement with the Tolkien estate.
2: Right. Right. Even though the Tolkien estate, I think, has been pretty generous, it's interesting mm-hmm. the, the different elements that they're, they're allowing them to use and not use, like... We don't see the word Anatar or the name Anatar being used a- around here. That's another subject we'll we'll, we'll talk about it. But um, yeah, it is interesting how they're they're balancing what they're allowing the showrunners to use and not use.
1: Right. I've had many names. He says.
2: Yes, indeed, <laughs> and they do it cleverly, right? Even when they got to get around something, they they have these little clever workarounds.
1: All right. So the other thing is, I think that we can see that this is sort of a mirror of the story in the Silmarillion with. Aonwe, the herald of Manway, being replaced by Galadriel. Okay. And you see Sauron reaching out to Galadriel, like, will you be my light? Will you bring me back to where I should have been in the first place? So I think that they've really cleverly replaced this story that they don't have the rights to with one that mirrors the same idea of Sauron almost redeeming himself and being rejected, but with the characters that they actually can use.
2: So, this sort of triggers my shippy test antennae. They're playing some jazz here with the core storyline. Obviously, we have some rights issues here, and we've got an eight-episode television show. Are we in alignment, do you think, with what the core story was supposed to be? And are these changes necessary, given the, the medium and the other conditions for, for the storytelling?
1: So necessary, I think, yes. If you want to do a redemption arc with Sauron, you need to make some kind of change to avoid this rights issue. So right. I think it passes a shippy test on that prong. On the other prong, yeah, I do think it gets to the core. I mean, Tolkien would have said that everyone, even Morgoth, was redeemable. huh. So having this almost redemption of Sauron is definitely in line with Tolkien's idea of what these characters are capable of.
2: And I think, given that we don't want to bring in, regardless of whether they have access to the rights of higher beings of Valar and Maiar, et cetera, et cetera, um, the f- you, I, I don't know that you would get a lot of juice out of bringing that level of uh, of uh, power beings into the storyline. Um, when we're, we're dealing with very, even though we're dealing with elves and dwarves, we're on a very "quote unquote" human scale in this storyline. And if we suddenly bring in the higher powers, that's going to, right? We'll be like, who, what, why, why do I care? When we're investing so much in these characters in front of us, right? So yeah, I think, uh, I think we're, I think we're okay on a shippy test here in terms of twisting uh, this part of the story.
1: Yeah, and I mean, in the Silmarillion, there's a ton of characters that are basically like one-offs where you see them once or twice and then they're gone. And Aonwe is one of them. We really okay. don't hear a lot about him. He plays a part in this paragraph really yeah. and then he plays a part in uh Maglor and Maedros uh sort of stealing the Silmarils back. So he's around but he's not that big. So why are we going to bring him in for this?
2: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, good. That 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 feels good then. I don't I don't feel bad and and we're bringing that core element in of Sauron's struggling with his own what he did and can he be redeemed? And would we say that redemption is a core Tolkienian theme in his works? Sure, yeah. Tolkien I think
1: uh said he wept when he wrote Gollum's decision not to <laughs> redeem himself. I didn't I didn't know uh, that. <laughs> in the in the cave with Shelob. Wow. And uh so he he was big on redemption, you know. Tolkien the Catholic is here. He wants yep. you to go to confession and and go on up to Catholic heaven. So, you know, I think that this is a great adaptation technique here.
2: Nice. Okay, cool. So another thing you put into our notes was this thing about uh, chains and trammels of the flesh of Arda. Brrr, what? <laughs> what is this about now?
1: So, yeah, this is a quote that was brought to my attention by Marilyn Pukila, actually, uh-huh. who, again, will be on our next episode, so stick around for that. So this is the idea that sort of the more the, the or the holy ones that contain, you know, the Valar, the Maiar, all these people like Sauron, Gandalf, etc., the more that they interact with sort of the activities of the children of Iluvatar, namely falling in love with children of Iluvatar and procreating, uh, the more they sort of get attached to that form of being. And so the story that I wanted to bring in, it's a very brief thing, is that the ancestor of uh, Baron and Luthien, the, sorry, the mother of Luthien is one of the Maiar who fell in love with an elf king uh, who's named Thingol. And when Thingol dies in the First Age, she is bound to the fate of the children of Iluvatar, of the elves. And so it... So basically, you weaken yourself by being one of the Maiar who, who marry uh, an elf. And so... I brought in a quote from the Silmarillion here uh, to describe what happened after the death of her husband. So do you want to read that again, David?
2: Sure. Uh, I may struggle a little bit with the names here, but uh, forgive me. <laughs> for Melian was of the divine race of the Valar, and she was a Maya of great power and wisdom. But for the love of Elwë, Singolo, she took upon herself the form of Eldar children of Iluvatar. And in that union, she became bound by the chain and trammels of the flesh of Arda.
1: Yeah, so remember we're talking about power of the flesh versus power over flesh. I think that you can connect that there. Nice. And I think that if you take Sauron at face value here, if he's really offering a union with Galadriel, Uh that is a big deal. That is saying, I'm going to stoop myself to the level of an elf so that we can be together and we can roll together.
2: And this really brings in that theme of this title to alloy, right? He's coaxing her in. He's, you know, he he has his power, she has her power, and he's trying to create an alloy between them by coaxing it together. Mm-hmm. And I also it also makes me think of the the whole thing of the as these things interact, it it um, alters the boundary between the seen and the unseen world. And so if um, Sauron, wow, like if Sauron's willing to, to depower himself in some way to alloy himself with Galadriel, that is a big deal.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to overstate that. I mean, he would still have sort of a lot of the powers of one of the Maiar. Oh, so yeah. he could still, like, you know, <laughs> he could still yeah. be, do a lot of mischief, but he would be you know more susceptible to death. He would be susceptible to dying from grief, which is something that the elves do. Right. And, uh, yeah, he he would be probably unable to shapeshift. So, again, that's a big deal. And I think that that sort of evokes what he does with the One Ring, which is put a lot of himself into this object to achieve a goal. So I don't think he – I think that's in character for him to be willing to alter his being a little bit to achieve a goal.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think this is a nice segue into the to, to talking about the rings themselves. And I believe it's explicitly stated, Tolkien has explicitly stated that one of the themes of the Rings of Power or of of his legendarium is this idea of externalizing your power and placing power in an object that is outside of yourself. And then what that does and how that brings in questions of morality and action uh, when you have access to that kind of power?
1: Right. Yeah. And and I mean, the act of creating the One Ring, it makes Sauron really good at domination. Yes. But it doesn't give him extra power. So again, he's he's altering he's altering his being, he's altering his abilities and his weaknesses to achieve a particular goal.
2: And we see that even with the ring on, like, yeah, he's kicking ass in the you know in the Battle of the Last Alliance uh, in the Jackson films, visually we see that. but it doesn't protect him ultimately, right? He's still mm-hmm. he's still defeated. And then, you know, obviously with Gollum, spoiler warning. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he's so he's not invulnerable. And in some ways, it makes him more vulnerable because his essence is tied into that ring. And so he's right. gi- he's given something up. To gain some, well, sacrifice uh, or creation requires sacrifice, right?
1: Right, exactly. So they're definitely laying the uh, the groundwork for that.
2: Interesting how this is all very circular. It's very ring like. Ah. ah sorry <laughs>
1: is it a crown no something <laughs> no. smaller but circular i heard on on doug too mm. deep they were sort of making fun of the cutesy nature of that like that was really funny Uh oh, it's gotta be a little smaller <laughs> what
2: could we wear that's circular <laughs> and we're all sitting on our couches like screaming at this it's a ring a ring yeah <laughs> that was honestly hilarious. though
1: i didn't mind it i thought it was fun it was so, cute so it, w- yeah. it was definitely yeah. cute
2: I did love uh, Brimbor's, uh comment about how the ring can kind of like work as a uh, particle accelerator, right? It's like, yeah. you know, how, how the, you know, the mithril light can sort of circle around that. I like that. Well, you know what we should do is we should just get into talking about the rings themselves. So I had some questions. I am not as steeped in the lore, as, as most of our viewers sh- I hopefully should know, is I'm not as steeped in the lore as you. I'm the, the audience proxy here. Um, and I've got questions about the rings and about which ones were forged. Which I think we're playing some jazz here with the uh, the order in which the rings are created. So can you run us through at least canonically how things go in the written text?
1: Yeah. So since they have seemed to have discarded parts of this plot here, which again, not totally against. Um, I think we can go through this now uh, okay. without without spoilers. So. All right, so in the books, Sauron takes on the fair form of Anatar, the Lord of Gifts. Right. And so that's why anybody who's read the books or has listened to The Lorehounds, the Second Age podcast, um, would be screaming at their TV when Halbrand goes. Let's call it a gift. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, "Ah, that's Sauron."
2: <laughs> which was a great trap, right? Because we said, "Wait, wait, and I even messaged you when I was as I was watching this. I was like, "Wait a minute, is Sauron a photon of light here? Is he a wave and a particle? Can he be Meteor man and uh, you know, and Halbrand?" I was really confused, but I, I really enjoyed that dramatic tension that, that that little trap that they set for us.
1: Yeah, and I was very confused because I had no idea where you were in the episode. And I was like, I don't know how to respond to this <laughs> without spoiling things. <laughs> All right. So, first, Anatar goes to Linden, which we've seen. That's where Gilgalad rules. And he goes to Gilgalad and Elrond is like, hey, you want to be friends? I can give you some gifts. I can teach you how to do things. And they go, nah, you seem pretty suspicious. Uh, uh, Marilyn actually brought in something that I didn't know in our interview, which is that. There's this idea where sort of these higher beings, these more intelligent beings, can uh, sort of see into the mind of others, okay. see their intention at least. Uh huh. But you can close yourself off to others with that. And so the reason that Gilgalad was suspicious of Anatar was because Sauron had himself closed off. Interesting. And so Gilgalad was like, hmm, why do you have yourself closed off to me? Why can't I read you?
2: Right. It was a bi directional communication flow, was uh, one way. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I, I, just a quick side call, too. I love how they brought in the, if they can't bring in Anatar and his shape they placed a lot of that into the aesthetics. And I thought that was a really nice touch there to still use that same literary element, but just misplace it onto another character.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I th- I thought that was good. I think that they did generally a very good job bringing this Sauron character in.
2: Right. Even though we don't have Anatar canonically.
1: Right. So, next, after he gets thrown out of Linden, Sauron goes to Aregion, which is, again, where Celebrimbor is. That's where right. the forge is. Right. And he says to Celebrimbor, Hey, buddy, I went to Linden first. They didn't want me. I'm here now. Uh, the, the people in Linden are jealous of your kingdom. They, uh... They think that they're better than you and they, they don't want to, uh, to share their gifts with you. So I'm going to help you match Linden in your glory. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build your kingdom up by teaching you how to make some rings and some, some uh, special crafts. But Celebrimbor, in contrast to the show, is actually really suspicious of Saron, uh, of Anatar. at this point. He's like, uh, I don't know if I can trust you, but he lets him stick around anyway. And so what Sauron does is he goes to the lesser smiths of Eregion, and those are the ones that create the nine rings for men and the, three, the seven rings for dwarves. Oh. And also a lot of lesser rings. Okay. There's, you, know, you, know, you remember in The Hobbit where, Sa- where Gandalf says, there are many magic rings in the world. Yes. So that's what's happening here is, is that there were a lot of what they call essays in ringmaking. There were a lot of these trial runs.
2: Got it. So they had sort of a, a, a Etsy of Aregion, uh pumping out some rings here, some crafted rings for different purposes.
1: Exactly. You ever see Portlandia? Where oh, they, yeah. Where they go, he's making jewelry now. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. So basically, that's how the nine and the seven get made. And Mithril was not part of this process.
2: Right. So, so Celebrimbor had nothing to do with the seven and the nine. Correct. Wow. Okay. That's interesting, and they've just cut that. Well, I mean, we don't know where we're going to get if we're going to get the seven. How we're going to get the seven and the nine in this story, right? And
1: and Sauron had a direct, uh, a direct hand, right, in the making of the seven and the nine, which right. is why he's able to control them more than the elves, right. So the three were made later in secret by Celebrimbor, who had sort of like learned the process from his smiths and from I guess watching Sauron forge. Uh, but he he did not tell Sauron about these, and he did not let him have a hand in them, and that's why they are the ones that are uncorrupted.
2: Got it. Okay. So did Celebrimbor do that in secret from the other elves as well? So Gilgalad and Elrond, nobody knew about these rings that he was making.
1: Well, no, he actually ends up sending them out to uh, to a couple other elves, especially to keep safe. So I won't I won't go with that because that's going to that's going to end up spoiling who gets what ring. And I don't want to do that for these viewers. So Um, but so I'm going to cut off the creation story here. So, David, we've got these three elven rings that were created in this episode, uh, which Galadriel makes very clear, like, oh, they need to be for the elves. Uh, and, and some important note here that the seven and the nine weren't necessarily intended for dwarves and men. Oh, interesting. I think that, uh, that really they were all intended for elves to begin with. But, uh, when, when Sauron's plans were sort of, you know, underway, he says, "Ah, I got seven here and I got nine there. I'll give them to the dwarves and the men. That way I have a hand in every pot here in Middle-earth.
2: Right. Interesting. OK, well, I did some digging a, a little bit more about the three elven rings and then also some real world history uh, about maybe where Tolkien might have gotten some inspiration for this. But um, I don't know. It, it feels like we almost have to like set up this little segment with the inscription or the poem that uh, Tolkien wrote for um, the context for the one ring. So uh, do you want to put on your, your, your best dark speech uh, accent and, and read this?
1: Dark space, you mean like, looks like meat's back on the menu, but no. <laughs> oh, God, no, please, no. Yeah. Three All rings, right. no. Uh. <laughs> Save us. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie.
2: I I, I don't know, I don't care how many times I've I've heard this, it still gets me. Like this is still just so cool. This this thing that he wrote and uh, I I just love it. So.
1: Yeah, I get chills every time.
2: Yeah. All right. So, John, we see the three rings um, that are forged for the elves and all of these rings. Now, the seven and the nine, we have less history on them, where they ended up, who ended up with them, what they did. Uh, I don't think he wrote that much about – he only wrote about certain rings and, and in certain circumstances. Yeah. But for the elven rings, we definitely have history and and more information about them. Right. So, and we noticed that um, all, and this is a a point about all the rings as I understand it, all of the rings had uh, a stone set in them. So it is canonical that these rings have a a gem in them. And it was only the one ring that didn't have a stone of any kind set into it.
1: Yeah. And I'll say this. One thing that did make me squirm a little bit was... Kelly happens to have these three gems sitting there before oh, yeah. they even have the plan of, <laughs> of three rings. I was like, ah, oh, yeah. that's that one's a little that that one's a little too cute, but I'll I'll forgive them. It was a good episode.
2: Yeah, that was a softball. You know, we've got we've got a, a, a wide variety of fans here. They had to tease that. So we we have the, those three stones, right? So we've got a, a red stone, a white stone, and a blue stone, and one of those each goes into one each rings. So so what we're going to not do is talk about who ends up with the rings or how different rings end up with different people, just so that we keep a little bit of um, the storyline pristine. But anyway, we've got uh, Narya, the Ring of Fire, and that's the uh, set with a ruby, and that ring's powers can uh, kindle the hearts of of beings, right, and make them feel more emboldened and you know well uh, willing to take on challenges that they they mm-hmm. might not otherwise. We have Nenya, the Ring of Water, or also known as the White Ring or the Ring of Adamant. And that ring, I believe, canonically is made with mithril, and it's set with a shimmering white stone. And um, its powers grant the wearer the ability to sort of protect and preserve things. And then lastly, we have Vilya, the Ring of Air, or the Blue Ring. And it was the mightiest of the three, and it was made with gold, and it was set with sapphire. And uh, it grants the wearer the ability to um, protect and safeguard things. So it's less about preservation. I think it has to do more with um, uh, healing as well.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's very vague because okay. you know Tolkien keeps his magic a little squishy.
2: Yes, he does. So, when I was doing some of this research, I found something interesting and I'm I'm sure for the the hardcore Tolkienist, this is a, a well-known stuff, but it was a little bit new to me and I thought it was very cool. Um at one point, Tolkien was invited to come to a complex at Lindy Park in the UK, I believe. Oh. Which is a Celtic ruins for a deity, and if I mispronounce this, I apologize. But I believe it's Nodens, and this Celtic god was associated with healing, and it has some roots with you know uh, Roman gods as well. But what's really interesting here is not only do Tolkien scholars think that the name Celebrimbor is directly derived from the uh, this Celtic god, Nodens. Um, there's some history in there about a silver-handed person, um, and there's some linguistic uh, uh, stuff going around in uh, in there with some different names and different variations. Um, but also at this complex, there's a, a bunch of ins- Latin inscriptions, and so Tolkien was invited to sort of analyze these. And one of them is a curse about a ring, and I won't read the 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 curse because it's uh, i don't want to be cursed, but also it's just kind of boring it's in, it's translated from latin and and I don't think nobody's really spiced it up um but basically it's about a lost ring that um uh it's you know some of its value has been returned to the owner, but until the ring is returned, the person who has it cannot get health like their their health is going to be like suppressed um and so, uh, so we have this uh, curse about a, a, a ring, and then this area is also known as Dwarf Hill. So there is a lot of richness in this one location and around this one god that um, Shippy and other Tolkien scholars uh, really can point their finger to and saying that this is some primary uh, uh, inspiration for Tolkien with the One Ring, with the dwarves, uh, with healing, with, you know, using magic, and these kinds of things. So here we have this Celtic god uh, who's associated with healing. We've got uh, a curse and a ring. We've got an area that's sort of colloquially known as as Dwarf Hill. Uh, We've got names uh, that are derived from this. Not only is this just cool to know about this inspiration and this history, this real world history, but this is, again, where Tolkien is bringing his whole self into his writing. And he's applying his philology, especially with Celebrimbor's name, deriving it from the name of this Celtic god and doing some, you know, philological stuff uh, to get this. So... Uh, We've got a couple of Wikipedia articles tagged in the notes below if you want to look this stuff up. But uh, yeah, just thought it was a very cool little tidbit to understand where Tolkien might have gotten the idea for rings and curses and such.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I I know Tolkien loved a lot of this ancient mythology stuff. and. Uh, especially, I mean, he loved classic English tales and, and I'm sure he was going into Irish stuff. So, but I, I had no idea about this. So thanks for bringing this in. Um, you look at this, you could look at his translation of Beowulf to see where his head's at a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there's a ton of stuff. Look, if you want to go deep into this Tolkien stuff, you will have years of reading ahead of you. <laughs> I true. promise. Yeah. So, Again, uh, and feel free to write in if you want recommendations on specific things. Uh, we, we're happy to help. And, uh, but thanks for bringing that in. I think that's a good preface to, uh, or a good tie-in to uh, what was happening with the rings.
2: Yeah. So, um, and I think it's interesting, too. To w- we've been talking about Halbren's deception of, of Galadriel. But canonically, isn't it, Sal- as you pointed out, it's Sauron Anatar um wooing Celebrimbor or and the uh, other Elvin Smith so again we're playing jazz here a little bit and do we fall with in the lines of the shippy test here is this again good adaptation
1: okay so I think it passes the shippy test because you know I I think that uh if you're going to have Galadriel be this main protagonist then you're going to need to make her be more central to this plot with the rings okay? Uh, than, than she was in the writings. Because really, in the writings, she was only tangentially evol- involved with it. Um, so I, I think that that's fine. Um, and I, I don't think it changes the core to have a different elf be deceived by Sauron. That's totally fine. Um, what what I don't like is just, I don't like sort of dopey Celebrimbor. Just like... <laughs> Fair enough. Just Grandpa Celebrimbor. Just yeah. be- also, I, I just want to make clear... He's supposed to be younger than Galadriel, mm. canonically. And i it's a very odd choice to make him, like, older and kind of gullible. Right. Um, when, when that goes against a lot of stuff. But, you know, I, I wish that they had done the Galadriel deception but kept Killebrimbor sort of a, a strong and capable person. Rather than having him be sort of like, oh, 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 yes, yes, uh, you know, uh, it's... It's a very odd change of character, but if we're here, then we're here. Um, I think the change itself to have it go to Galadriel is fine with the shippy test. What do you think?
2: I did like the uh, callback, though, with uh, Keller sort of doing a Bilbo, like, oh, oh, yes, uh, the ring, the ring. It's just here in my pocket, Um, where he's just sort of like, oh, you know, like he's under the spell of of Halbrand here in in the flattery and, and in his head and all of these details about creating an alloy. I think... If we are going to believe Galadriel as a badass and a potential future, you know, ruler of a large area of, of Middle-earth, to have her be so—I mean, she is deceived, but very expertly, expertly, whereas I think Halbrand is using some really basic tricks on Celebrimbor— so I don't know. I'm okay with the change. I think I think it works. I can get why people might be a little bit uh, irked by it. But I think for a story on television, it plays a little bit better if we can see these different levels of deception that Halbrand is employing and that uh, with somebody like Galadriel, he's got to work a little bit harder and he's got to play a little bit longer of a game where you know they've been setting up Obviously, they set up Celebrimbor very early on as being somebody who could be easily flattered. But I like this as a hallmark of the elves that they can be flattered, that their vanity is a downfall for them. And so I think they've simplified it here because we're not going to see Gilgalad or uh, Elrond or Galadriel be as easily fooled. But I think that's a, a great place where we can see the weakness of the elves—that their vanity is this point that can be exploited for Sauron's own motivations.
1: Yeah, um, I think that that's definitely characteristic of, especially the Noldor elves, which is what uh-huh. we're looking at here. Right. Um, especially the sons of Feanor, uh very, very much into into themselves. And Celebrimbor is the grandson of Feanor, and again, he was supposed to be kind in the writings. It's not—it's not like he's. Uh, so dark as his as his uh, parents' generation, but um, yeah, I mean, I I could see it going either way. I I think that was a good defense you put up of the uh, the dumbification <laughs> of uh, of
2: Sounds good. All right, should we uh, switch gears and talk about the Istari?
1: I love the Istari.
2: Yeah, uh, not Ishtari, not Ishtari. No, no,
1: we're not. It's not Easter. It's not Easter. That's 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 where we're at, because because I feel like in the past year I've seen like a million like Tumblr and Reddit posts going around like, hey, did you know that Easter is actually based on the god Ishtar? And it's yeah. OK. Yeah, we get it. But it, the, 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 the Tolkien thing is the Istari. <laughs> Fair enough. Istari is the plural of Ishtar, which is the word that they used. In the show.
2: Yes. All right. And we have some familiar, familiarity with the Istari, in as much as we, uh, if we're uh, Jackson film viewers, we know of Saruman the White and obviously Gandalf the Gray, who ultimately becomes the White. If we watch The Hobbits, and I, uh, I'm i so sorry for you, uh, we know a little bit about Radagast the Brown, and we've heard talk that there are, you know, uh, the greatest of my order, and there are five and, and whatnot. So first of all, let's just back up a little bit to make sure that we're on the same page. What are the Istar-E?
1: All right. So the Istari are a subclass of Maiar. Right. So they are of the same sort of level- of demigods as Sauron and, uh, you know, Melian that we talked about earlier, but they have a special mission and they have special limitations, and that's because they are sent for a very specific purpose. Now, canonically, they were coming in the Third Age. That's pretty universal. There are some discrepancies in the writing where Tolkien played around with the idea of the Blue Wizards coming in the second age. And then there's one note. Uh-huh. There's one note where he says in his last writings, which you can find in uh The Nature of Middle-earth, where he says maybe Gandalf came by in the second age and hung out with some people. That's basically right. what he says. It's okay. it's like it's like a sentence or two where he says, "Yeah, maybe Gandalf came"
2: Now you got some internet points down on uh, the blue wizards. Are we? uh, Are we awarding you points uh, this round, or um, take them away? Take them away off the table.
1: Take them away. I'm I'm uh, broke. The house won this one.
2: <laughs> okay, so well let's keep let's keep talking about it, and we'll we'll get around to it. Uh, and then I think Aaron had a theory about um, uh, about who Meteor Man might be. I don't know if we want to get into that here, but let's keep talking about. So they're sent to Middle Earth, but they're they have some instructions or programming about how they can represent themselves.
1: Right. So they're told not to openly reveal their true nature. Uh-huh. They're not supposed to take direct action against Sauron. They're sent in response to Sauron in the Third Age. Okay. So, and again, this is their later sending. So if we're playing around with them being there in the Second Age, they could have different instructions, different limitations. So there's a lot of jazz they can play here. Okay. But they are they are sent sort of to guide the free peoples of Middle-earth to help defeat Sauron. So not to, not to directly fight these people unless they come up against somebody of their own order, like the Balrog, who's one of the, the Maiar. But they, their mission is very specific, which is go fight Sauron, but do so by giving everybody a nudge in Middle Earth, trying to get them to come together against Sauron.
2: So what you're saying here is Tolkien invented the influencer lifestyle before social media. What do you think Gandalf's Instagram looks like? <laughs> I sh- Somebody out there has a Gandalf Instagram, right? Like, it, they're doing it somewhere. Yeah. So, um, so they show up as, what, old men just wandering around the place?
1: Yeah, so they show up a- as old men, and they are different from the normal Maiar, because rather than being these spiritual beings who can take on a physical form, they are placed into fixed physical forms of old men, and they are with all of the weaknesses of men except that they don't uh, die a natural death at, like a length of time but they can be killed they just live in perpetuity.
2: Okay, so that that sheds some light on um a bit of the writing and and the action in episode 8 here where Meteor Man is Fighting the Aesthetics. Um, that's the Swedish death metal band, uh, if, if we want to... And they actually have names. I actually saw that on the X-ray. Um, and it's something I want to get into uh, Marilyn about is like what these three um, witches or wizards or what... I, we don't know what they are, but I definitely want to get into to, with Marilyn about what these might represent because um, this definitely feels like non-canonical stuff. Absolutely. Um, but where... Meteor Man says, I am good, and sort of, you know, throws his last punch. Um, I think that that's interesting because if the Istari can be corrupted, then it's this question of free will, and the actions that we take are, are how we define ourselves. And so even though the Swedish death metal band think he's Sauron, There's still a potential that they could woo him with evil, whereas Nuri is trying to woo him with good. Right. So the whole
1: point of them being part of these real men bodies is that they can be turned to evil. Uh They can be sort of corrupted in a way that it's harder to do to a normal Maya.
2: I think interestingly enough, too, if I could apply some more analysis, this is some more tinfoil hat stuff. If they're going to be influencers of a sort and try to uh, indirectly counteract the effects of of, um, Sauron, being able to empathize and to walk in the shoes of and and feel cold and and feel love and warmth, that sort of gives them a greater edge in terms of influencing people. Because if they're just big, powerful beings... Well, why didn't you just, you know, fix it for us? Like, why didn't you just heal Sadok, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you made a tree and you, you fed us a little bit, but you were like maybe a little muddled behind your veil. But if you're like really who, you know, if you're this fully flesh and blood person imbibed with a little bit of extra power, having the ability to empathize with those that you're influencing, I think it gives you a greater insight into the psychology of those people that you're trying to influence. I don't know. That's my tinfoil tinfoil theory.
1: No, that's definitely part of it. And uh, part of it is the limits. And I'm going to have to give you a mildly interesting answer on why they are given these limits and why there is so much nervousness, anxiety around divine intervention at the point that they come.
2: So in just... My, for, for folks who, who might not know, that's sort of a bald move code for uh, John knows something that from the books that he doesn't want to spoil for the rest of us. So if you ever hear us use mildly interesting, that's what that means. Okay, so um, there were five Istari? Five Istari, and I'm going
1: to do the blue wizards first because I think that that theory is dead.
2: Oh, I was so hoping that you were going to win some internet points on the blue. I was like, I'm still thinking that he's a blue. He's definitely blue wizard inspired. I feel.
1: Ah, maybe uh, there was there was an interview that we we're going to talk about more on the wrap up podcast with the showrunners. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And they were really cutesy about who the who yeah. the stranger really is. Who which Istari he is? And, Whether he's uh, any of them? Yeah. Right. No, he's definitely one of the Istari.
2: Okay. Well, yeah, no, Istari, a, a, a but is he one of the five? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a
1: specific order. That's a yes. specific order of five. Okay. So I, I don't think that that we can have non, non-ridden non Istari. Right. So I think he is one of the five. The question is, who is he?
2: Interesting. Okay. All right. So
1: so who are these blue wizards? So the blue wizards are named Alatar and Palando, and they, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh-huh. They, uh, they probably came together, so that's one point against me on the Blue Wizard theory. They're attached to the Hunter Vala, so again, each, each one of the Maiar in general, and also the Astari, has a boss, yeah, has right. a patron saint. Okay. And uh, Sauron's was Aule, and uh-huh. uh, so, so these Blue Wizards are attached to Arame the Hunter Vala. Okay. Uh, and there's not a lot spoken about what happened after they came. Um, They probably went to Rune, so that is a point for the Blue Wizards, Yeah, Uh, but they didn't come back from Rune. They kind of disappeared, and and Tolkien says, yeah, maybe they forged uh, secret cults and magic traditions that outlasted the fall of Sauron. That's a direct quote there. So that's a really cool sort of tidbit, like if they could could show us some magic cults that are even a separate threat from Sauron, Uh, but... Maybe they'll do that on the side and there's already Alatar and Palando are in Rune and Meteor Man comes and goes, Hey guys, what's up?
2: That that's a a far stretch, but we'll see. And we're gonna talk about Rune. We've got some notes about Rune later in this little bit here. So but basically we get the blue wizards, they they land, they go off to the east, and then nobody's ever heard of them again. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then but
1: but perhaps also they helped in the Second Age, nudge the peoples of Middle Earth toward uh, defeating Sauron because that's right. another note he makes in Last Writings, which again these are very extended writings. Last writing came out a few years ago, so okay. it's it's very recent.
2: Okay, and and it, at least in the writings there was um, threat from the east and the south, from the Easterlings and the th- and the Southlings towards Middle Earth. These were areas right. of peril where forces that were more aligned with Sauron, where Sauron might have been drawing on uh, uh, other peoples.
1: Yeah, the men of Rune were in the armies against Gondor in, okay. uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Right. So, uh, yeah, there are enemies through the Lord of the Rings. And, okay. And it's only Aragorn who's able to make peace with them.
2: Got it. All right, so who are our other three? Uh, obviously, we've got Sauron. So Saruman, Aeron messaged me and said...
1: So you think this is Saruman? And I was like, oh, I don't know where you're getting that from." But he actually pulled up something from the wikis where, yeah. where they talk about sort of Saruman going with the Blue Wizards to the east and then coming back.
2: I heard that on the Dug Too Deep podcast, and I was uh, curious to get your take on that.
1: I don't think it's Saruman. Okay. I think that they want Gandalf first of all. I think that they, I think that they would like the Hobbits to be with Gandalf. Okay, and. I don't think it's in character for Saruman to be so like attached to the Harfoots. Uh-huh. I think that Saruman has always been very dismissive of who he believes are like lower races, uh-huh. uh, lower classes of being. He was much more attracted to men uh-huh. because they are into kingdoms and power. And I just don't think it's really in character for him to be besties with Nari.
2: It would be a huge tonal shift for Meteor Man- to then suddenly become Sour Man. I get the, I get the detective work that uh, has been done on that theory, and I think it's interesting. I think for television, that would be a hard shift for us to yes. take as an audience.
1: And I don't think that it makes sense for him to be so dismissive of the Hobbits in the Third Age if he hung around with the Harfoots when he first came to Middle-Earth. Right. That, that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm, I'm anti The Saruman theory. I don't think it's Saruman.
2: Okay. And that's an an interesting segue we should probably address really quick is when um, the Istari come to Middle Earth, or come down to Terra Firma, as it is, there's a veil or there's a forgetfulness that they have, and we obviously see that when um, Gandalf meets up with uh, what's left of the Fellowship, and they're like, "Oh, Gandalf!" And he was like, "Oh, uh-huh. yes, I, you know, that was my name once, kind of thing." Um, and we're seeing that with Meteor Man here. So there's something in the process of uh, uh, a being sent down that clouds them, or in, intentionally or unintentionally. I, I, I can't speak to
1: that. Maybe, anymore. maybe that's it's a bit of a stretch. I'm going to be honest, because okay. at, at least from canon, because. First of all, when Gandalf came back, that was a very special case because he was the only Istari to die and be sent back by yes. the big guy upstairs, by Eru right. Arugula, as right. we say. As Which, we by say. the way, the Bald Move Art Club delivered, so I want to shout them out. They delivered this wonderful Eru Arugula art that uh, if, you, if you're if you not on the Discord, first of all, get in there, get chatting with us. Uh, but this Eru Arugula thing cracked me up.
2: No way. I got to get in. I've, I, since I was on my travels, I've, I've just really stayed uh, far away from a lot of that stuff because I had to stay focused on what I was doing. So I'm excited to jump in and see what the, uh, the gang and the art club has uh, come up with us. It's a great bunch of creators in there. We have a, It's a little sub-segment of, of folks and, and putting out all the emojis and sticker art and stuff for the community. And yeah, I just love that group of people. They're, uh, they're awesome. Um, and it's so fun to be part of that. Uh, I'm just blathering now.
1: No, you know what? You, you're blathering out of love. Yes,
2: I am blathering out of love.
1: Yeah, so, Errorugula aside, this was a special case of Gandalf being sent back to Middle-earth after right. dying, as as one of the Istari. And, canonically, they came by boat, I think. Like, uh, Gandalf meets up with Círdan the shipwright when he first uh-huh. comes to Middle-earth in the Third Age. Right. So, and, and he wasn't confused. Like, Círdan was like, yeah, you know, I feel like this guy is something special. So... I think that they're just playing a lot of jazz here this is okay. this is really just uh, a show creation this veil thing um, we don't at least we don't have a lot of information on it so right you know I'm not I'm not against it I'm not right. against it but I'm just saying I, I I can't tell you anything about that from the lore
2: it sounds good okay cool so uh, we have Radagast the brown
1: yes Radagast is attached to Yavanna, who is the uh, the Vela of fruit and growth. Okay. And so you see why he's running around with the animals and in the forest in the in the Hobbit movies. Uh, they made him a little too incompetent, I think, to be honest.
2: And my money was, my internet points were on Radagast the Brown, uh, Meteor Man being Radagast the Brown, so uh, the house wins there uh, as well. So I lost my internet points.
1: There's not enough bird poop on his face.
2: <laughs> Ouch. Fair enough. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the biggest starry in the room, Gandalf. Um, A lot of theories flying around the internets about is Meteor Man Gandalf? And does that, how do we as an audience feel about that? Do we feel like that's cool fan service-y stuff? That's smart marketing because we're bringing in uh, a character that's known by casual fans? Um, Is it Gandalf, but just Gandalf in another form. And so Gandalf doesn't know themselves to be Gandalf. What's your take here? If it's not Gandalf,
1: I will sing at least the chorus of I'm a Barbie girl on air.
2: (laughs) All right. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) Make your. That's my wager. All right.
1: (laughs) It's Gandalf. It's Gandalf. Okay. Come on. I mean, listen to what he's saying to Nori like, oh, trust your nose and this and that. Come on. Come on.
2: And the show is pretty consistent about having the characters tell us who they are. Halbrand was telling us he was Sauron all the way through. If we look back, we can see all the things that uh, he was saying that were, were very sour mo- or, uh, uh, Sauron-y. Um, so yeah. I, I don't think they're, they're not creating a Lost-style mystery box here. They're, they're setting up mysteries that are solvable.
1: Right. And, I mean, there is a note that maybe Gandalf came in the Second Age as Olorin, which is his sort of higher name, uh, and hung out around the, the different peoples of Middle-earth and got to know them. So I think that's what we're seeing here. I think it's Gandalf. Gandalf was sent by Manwe, the king of the Valar, you know, the head honcho, uh, other than Eru Arug- Arugula. I can- now I'm saying it not even on purpose. <laughs> uh, so Eru Iluvatar, so that I don't completely confuse the audience. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's Gandalf. I don't think I don't see any way out of this at this point.
2: Now, from a lore standpoint, we got to break down a little bit about what's going on with Meteor Man here and the Swedish death metal band and the land of Rune. We've got a lot of stuff here that I feel is non-canon and that they're making some stuff up here. Where are we? What? So where where is Rune? Rune is literally
1: just Sindarin for East. Okay. So it's the Eastlands of Middle-earth. It contained Quivianon, and I forgot the name, but the place where men woke up as well. Okay. So all of the peoples of Middle-earth except the dwarves started in Rune, and the dwarves were sort of scattered to different parts of Middle-earth, uh, But and so some of them were in Rune.
2: Right. It's sort of the, the Rift Valley of uh, of Middle-earth.
1: Yeah, so it is sort of the Fertile Crescent of this Middle-earth is is Quivienen and the men, Awakening Point, are both in the east. They're both in Rune, and then some of the men and elves came to the west. Who is left in Rune, you ask?
2: I do. Who is left in Rune?
1: <laughs> so the Avari, the elves that are the unwilling, they refused to go to Valinor at all. They didn't want to take the journey. They were really nervous about the Valar. Okay. Uh, they are still in Rune. So we okay. could see some of that, and I would love that, because we have almost no information on them.
2: Well, and that's interesting because they they are, I believe, allowed to make up stuff like that. I don't know how much they have to check with the estate, but um, that is open ground. That is, uh, you know, uh, a big, broad, empty canvas that they can paint with, that they can paint on.
1: Right. Um, So aside from Oliphants from from (laughs) Lord of the Rings, uh, we've also got men there who didn't cross the mountains and go into the main part of Middle-earth because remember the Edine and the houses of the Edine came to the west. They hung around the elves. That's how the Dunedine, that's how the Numenorians became these supermen is they hung around the elves for a while right. on the west of Middle-earth. Whereas a lot of men stayed behind and they were not on the side of good in the first Age.
2: Interesting. So I have a question now, and I definitely, like I mentioned, I, I want to get into uh, with Marilyn a little bit more uh, about this. But the aesthetics, otherwise known as the uh, Swedish death metal band, um, who were they and what were they doing tracking Meteor Man? Are they kind of like an inverse of the three wise men coming to like find the <laughs> Christ child to bring him back to their own lands? Because they're like, oh, Lord Sauron, soon you will regain your powers and you will rule over all the lands of Rune. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Like, Sauron had a plan all along to create Mordor, right? And so, like, who are these um, uh, uh, aesthetics, these, these weird uh, uh, people showing up and, and trying to bring him to the east?
1: Did you look at the ears? I did. I did, too. What, what's your verdict?
2: I don't know. I couldn't tell. And I was like, wait a minute. Really? What? No. Wh- what's going on here? I, I was confused. That's that's my verdict. I'm confused.
1: I'm on Team round ears. Okay. I think that they're men. I don't think that they're... Uh, okay. And again, the race of men, not the gender, right. sex. Right, yes. Because, you know, Tolkien is... It's it's not human. It's mannish. It's, right. It's, uh, he's very into that, so... Right. We're going to stick with that nomenclature unless I forget, and then I probably will.
2: Because they had bearing, very elven-like bearing, you know, in the way that they held sure. themselves and the way that they spoke and such. So I, I was just really confused. And and this whole hermit's hat thing, um, I know there are some Tolkienists out there who are way deep into the astrology, mm-hmm. astronomy, actually the astronomy and astrology of the legendarium. So it'll be interesting to hear – some of the other podcasts out there, see if they get into this. But do we know is that a is that a, a show creation?
1: I think it is. Okay, I don't know anything about a Hermitat constellation, so okay, uh, you know, write in if you if you see something. But yeah, I please, can't definitely. tell. Um, I can't tell. I went. I even googled it because I was just like, maybe maybe somebody's found something, and the only thing I could find was an article written about this episode. So I think it's show creation.
2: I think we'll save our speculation about the land of rune and what what. Um, uh, Meteor Man and Nori will get up to for our season recap podcast so that we're yeah, that not uh, good. too far off the thing here. All right, John, well, that covers it, I think, for our our deep dive. Uh, we've got Salron's Almost Redemption arc, uh, some more info about the Rings of Power themselves, and the Istari. Uh, you had one more minor note, and then I think we'll maybe take a break right after that and then come back with feedback. So what, what's the last little thing you had here?
1: Yeah, there was just one thing, and I've noticed it being commented on, including by Doug Too Deep, um, where people are saying, you know, Tower Palantir was damaged by the Palantir. Uh-huh. And, and, and that the show backs that up. I mean, he goes, oh, I've looked into it too long, and now I can't tell what's past and f- present and et cetera. Okay. Um, that's definitely a show creation because okay, the Palantiri are, are tools of of sight, not necessarily to the future, first of all. But more far seeing, like geographically, and and things like that.
2: An eye, you might say.
1: <laughs> yeah, an eye to see with. Right, and then they're not damaging until Sauron gets his hand on one and is is chatting with people through it.
2: Right, and he's using that uh, that um, telepathic power that the those beings have to like maybe listen and to influence. Right. right? Yeah.
1: Right. And um, I'll add, too, that they've changed a lot of who has the Palantiri here, because okay. in the books, really what happens is the elves of Tol Arisaia, that's the island off of Valinor, um, give the Palantiri to the faithful, to Elendil's family and, and faction, uh, so that they can keep in touch, because, Val- because Numenor has banned the elves from visiting Numenor.
2: Okay, got it. So um, it might be a shippy test here. Is that something that we can live with? Does it, um, Is it core, and does it serve the purpose of the medium?
1: Um, I'd say that as long as they have at least three Palantiri, uh-huh. you can do the Lord of the Rings. Okay. You need three to do the Lord of the Rings, as Marilyn and I talked about.
2: Right, right.
1: So as long as they do that, it's fine. Who has the Palantiri? I guess it's it's fine. I don't want to see Farstone using the the Palantir because I feel like that's a um, sort of a, a you know an Elvish technology. Maybe he'll he'll eschew it.
2: Got it. Okay, got it. Did um, uh, what's her name? Use it. I, I I'm sorry, I'm blanking her name. A- a- Arian. A- a- Arian. Thank you. Did Arian look into the Palantiri? That's a question. I guess that's a question for season two, isn't it?
1: Yep. Yep. We're not going to know now.
2: And that's that Palantiri also seems like a little bit of a broken record. I mean, if that's the only thing that it's showing anybody. Um, I wonder if there's something wrong with the, with the firmware on that Palantiri.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to have to do a software update called
2: the Geek Squad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, well, all right, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll get into some listener feedback. <music> And we're back. All right, John, uh, our mailbag is pretty full. Um, Thank you, everyone who's been writing in. Uh, We love to get your emails. We try. We can't always reply, but we always try to make sure that we get to everybody's feedback. Um, And on our first email, we've got something from uh, David G., who says... um, and he sends us a YouTube link and he says, I stumbled on this YouTube series a few weeks ago and I've been and having an incredible time, quote unquote, rereading these books. The production value is incredible with sound effects and music from the movies. Almost all the characters have their own voice actor and many are reminiscent of the actors who played them in the films. There are a few moments where you realize this is being done by an independent group, but it doesn't ruin the experience. Not sure how above board this is. But I think both of you would greatly enjoy these audiobooks. The channel is called Audiobooks Near the Fireplace and so far have only covered the three Lord of the Rings books. So this is a, a YouTube series. John, you checked this out. Can you tell us a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I, re- I listened to the scene where uh, it's Theoden's death scene, which is a very emotional scene. I mean, mm-hmm. yes. uh, and they did a really great job of it. Um, I have no idea how they're getting away with this. I feel like it's it's like a thousand copyright violations uh, but maybe just maybe they're not monetizing it and nobody's going after them right now. but it's the full books. I mean for now at the time of recording this morning I just popped them on so uh, yeah I mean they were good. Thanks for the recommendation.
2: Okay, well, we put a link to that YouTube in, uh, that YouTube channel in the show notes, but it's called Audiobooks Near the Fireplace. Um, and maybe uh, check them out and give them some love because it sounds like it's a pretty cool thing. I'm going to probably check it out uh, a little bit later myself. All right, we've got another email from Pell F. Hi there. On the latest episode, you mentioned that another show was going to hijack the feed for a bit. I don't want to turn off the auto-download for the feed, but you should think about adding some show tags for the episode title so they can filter out stuff. I'll be here waiting for Rings of Power Season 2 coverage. Didn't find the show until Episode 5, but I like what's being pumped into my ear holes thus far. Oh, that's a... <laughs> I don't know if I like that that visual of, of, uh, of putting things in people's ear holes, but... Uh. Call it he's got good. he's
1: got the the forge of the rings just like <laughs> pouring the the molten mithril <laughs> right, right into your holes. You go.
2: So this is less a uh, lore related thing and more about our uh, production schedule for the lorehounds coming up. Um, John, what do you think about what Pell has to say here?
1: Yeah, I mean we kind of addressed this up front, but we're going to be cleaning up the nomenclature of our podcasts uh, going forward, so that every episode of this podcast should have the rings of power lore cast up front. That way you can see what's going on with that. Um, We are going to probably do preseason coverage for season two. I don't know when because we don't know when season two is. Uh, So if you're looking for more Rings of Power, there may be stuff in the interim. So keep an eye on this feed. I don't want to push you away. But we will clearly label what we're covering as we go.
2: Yeah. And then I also just want to I think there's a good, good opportunity to mention that we do have Eight episodes of pre material that, if you want to go back to now that you've seen um, the show, that you know could add some uh, enjoyment to your uh, list, you know, to your viewership and your understanding the show. So check out our our back catalog there, and then uh, yeah, like like John said, we'll be we'll be careful going forward to make sure that every episode coming out is labeled clearly so that you know what you're getting. Yes, and just to be
1: clear on that preseason coverage, that is full spoilers for the season for the series.
2: Yes, yes.
1: So don't whoop, whoop, don't go whoop, in there warning. expecting the same kind of treatment you've gotten on this podcast. That is the full story of the second. age. Yes, but also if you are not totally spoiler averse, I'll say this: the show is still a mystery box for me, knowing yes. how all this thing all this happens, because they are first of all very off the rails on the lore, um, but also they've created a, a bunch of non canon mysteries for us. So. I I wouldn't be too worried about the lore ruining the show because it's really just bullet points.
2: I think, too, this is kind of a, a cool thing that maybe we'll talk a little bit more in the season wrap is both this show and House of the Dragon and certainly Better Call Saul all are taking stuff that may be written or is in between stuff where we have sort of beginning and ending points. And they're fitting something in. And this is more maybe House of the Dragon and and Rings of Power where there is written material and all of this stuff is known to a degree. But there's huge gaps in the knowledge and how things get from place to place. And I think that is really interesting as a a zeitgeist of what's going on in, in TV and movies right now. And even if you are, like John said, A uh, lore aficionado to somebody completely unaware of the lore, I think it's rich ground. So even if you do go back and listen to our previous coverage of the setup for all of this stuff, I don't think it's going to ruin the watching experience for you. All right. Next up is uh, Billy W. by email. He wrote us a long email, uh, but basically saying that he's come around after episode seven. Uh, he says that uh, Galadriel is really inspiring with uh, Thea was delightful and Durin, uh trying to tell Elrond his real name almost had me choked up. This is all largely great and better than I could have hoped for. Don't let a volcano... <laughs> or Celeborn's ruined your good time. Nobody cares about that guy. I care
1: about you, (laughs) Kelleborn.
2: Thanks, Billy. Uh, Yeah, that was a a big email. I know we edited you down on that. But yeah, I agree. Um, I think we don't need to to light any horses on fire here and send them running. Um, I think we're done with volcanology for now. I think the point... Uh, I think the point has been made that they're, that I, and you even made this belly in your email that they're trying to push a big event out on us and it may have gotten caught up a little bit in the details, but ultimately they're telling a a, a pretty good story. I'm going to steal
1: a joke from Aaron and say, I don't care about volcanology and I'm tired of pretending that I do. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. The survival of the volcano is fine. Let's move on.
2: (laughs) Exactly. All right. Next up is an email from Elsie. It's a long one. So I'll just uh, start off with it here. It says, uh, you asked me for my opinions on the dwarven accents. I should mention that although I live in Scotland, I was raised in London in a big Irish and English working class family. So accent wise, I sound something like an orc. But when (laughs) I'm at work, I code switch to an elf. (laughs) So uh, she says, I'm A Harfoot orc elf hybrid, which makes me have an even more confusing uh, lineage than Adar. Uh, Elsie goes in to talk about the traveler community in the UK, talking about um, Scotland and uh, how the Scottish accent is associated with sort of heavy industry, talking about the orcs uh, and how they're very sort of hammy, cockney things. So I think all of this is putting a a finger on how the show production has utilized accents to separate out in the viewers, in our reception, oh, okay, I know when I hear this voice, it's a dwarf, and I know when I hear this voice, it's a a Harfoot. And I think there's legitimate purposes there and and co-opting different accents, but we've also got to be careful about stereotyping uh, different cultures and and how these accents are are coding these different groups that we're seeing on the show.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that there's a big conversation to be had. Uh, uh, you know, we're always having conversations on diversity and how to increase that in uh, film and TV. And I think one of the next steps is, I, I think Aaron brought this up, is class is part of this too. Right. And I think that we have a little bit of a blind spot. I'd like to see a, a fantasy show really have the courage to go with American accents or something um, and to not lean into the working class accents to make somebody sound stupid or etc. So I'd like to see more creativity on this front. You don't need to give me that obvious coding. Show me with somebody's words why they're less intelligent, why they're, uh, you know, interesting doing, doing something untoward. Don't right. don't rely on these crutches anymore. So I think that that's a, a great start to a good conversation. I hope that uh, our listeners will join Elsie and us on Discord to discuss that some more.
2: Absolutely. Okay. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Mike Yu. Um, He says, first uh, first off, love both your shows. So I think he's uh, talking about the Dug Too Deep with Jim and Aaron as well. Um, He's got two points. Of the cultists, both podcasts have speculated on the possible elvish origins, we were just talking about this, of the Swedish death metal band members. But I'd like to point out that the helmed member has clearly human ears, unless that Cult clips elf ears like they do dogs, I'd wager. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, oh, boy. That these three are all humans. So I think points to you, John and Mike, for calling out the human origins of the death metal band.
1: Yeah, I I think that that's, uh, I think that they're men. I I will say this. I had some issues with them having this broad level of magic powers, but. Uh Uh-huh. You know, here's how they redeem it for me. Yes. Show me them being taught magic and uh-huh. and given powers by the blue wizards. By blue wizards. Ah. Yes. <laughs>
2: We're is on the it? same page there. Nice. It's one. not going to happen. I I, I do. I, uh, one little production note too. I kept seeing. We kept seeing. I forget when she's which one she's called um, the dweller. I think um, the one who is the one that we see first, who has the white eyes and does the the shape-shifty stuff. A couple of scenes, we saw her with blackened hands, and I was like, oh, is she like a werewolf? Is she one of these hounds shape-shifting or something like that? But then it was like very nicely revealed that she can hold fire, and so her hands were blackened from the human blowtorch action. Yeah. Uh, His second point of man-elf couples, this has come up several times on both podcasts, with the famous three discussed each time. But why? No mention of the elf, oh, I can't pronounce this, Mithralius. Mithralius? Mithrellis and her supposed Numenorean husband Imrazor, who became the founding couple of the line of Princes of Dol Amroth. Granted, I think it was just legend, but should be at least worth mentioning. Okay, so this is a deep cut, John. Do you uh, this have something for deep. us on here? Yeah. So he linked to the Tolkien
1: Gateway articles on these people. And and if you look at the references, they are deep, deep cuts. I mean, Unfinished Sales isn't super deep. But other than that, you've got History of Middle Earth and things like that. So it's um, the, why no mention is just they have not even a little bit of the rights to this. and uh, uh, but, but I think that it's worth a mention. So I think that it's good that you wrote in and brought that to everybody's attention. So thanks for that.
2: All right. Next up, we've got Mike S., and uh, Mike is going to call us to task a little bit. I appreciate all your lore knowledge and willingness to share it with us. As someone who is enjoying the show, I will say I feel the general mood towards the production is a bit too harsh. Okay. We are literally comparing the show to movies that won record-breaking amounts of Academy Awards, and people are conveniently forgetting that the movies had its own harsh criticisms to lore changes as well. We are so early in the whole story of The Second Age, we need to allow these stories to play out before we write it off. And he's got some second points, but uh, let's go into this first. I, Mike, am with you... I'm also not gonna reserve my criticism when they fumble plots. I like a lot of action shows and political dramas and things like that. And I just felt that there was a lot of clunky um, handling of the military aspects of the Numenorian expedition. I can live with some pyroclastic flow things, but I'm with you overall that they are, as I said before, they're weaving a really rich tapestry. And I think they're bringing in a lot to tell an amazing story. And I agree with you. We've got four more seasons to go. So let's not write anything off. John? So
1: I try to keep it real here, as, <laughs> as we say on the Bald Move Network. Right. Um, I think that when I feel strongly that an episode did not live up to a billion dollar production... I'm going to say that. And I felt that way very strongly about the last episode. I stand by all my criticisms, and I think that that makes my praise of this episode a lot more meaningful, um, because I will call this show out when it's not doing its job. And I, I'll, I'll say this, too. I know that you're saying let's com- let's not compare it too strongly with these big budget movies but this show cost a billion dollars it was it was they spent more on this show on the season of a show than they spent on the entire lord of the rings trilogy so i don't want to give them a pass on that i mean there there's really no excuse to not be operating at a high level we're we're talking 20 years later a lot of things have happened with the golden age of television so i i think that that's less of an excuse than you're you're implying now that being said I was very harsh on the last episode, and I was less... I said this on the feedback where they were on. I was less angry about it a couple days later. Um, but I'll, I'll say that most of my issues with that last episode were not even lore-related. They were really right. just storytelling-related. Yeah, they yeah. were... Re- right. And and I still stand by... We'll talk, we'll talk about this on the season wrap-up is... I don't think that they properly paced the season.
2: I don't disagree with you, and... This is one of the last few caveats I'm going to give to COVID production issues. Yeah. That they had COVID production issues. That's this should be some of the last shows to having dealt with that. So hopefully we're going to, you know, have things ironed out. And they've only got 8 episodes. Legally they can only produce an 8 episode series or you know episodes in a season and that does a lot to constrain their storytelling techniques i could have easily seen this going eight to twelve episodes if they could have gone that way they could have told a very different story in terms of how the rings were forged how you know how brand showed up so i i give them some leeway there in terms of uh what the constraints are in terms of of how they can produce the show
1: What's interesting to me, though, is that my criticism is not enough happened in some of those middle episodes.
2: <laughs> okay, Yes.
1: like episode seven, I could barely tell you what the premise of it was. Right. It's, it It was very uh, slow. it was and it was slow in a way that it didn't it didn't make me love the characters more because if you want to have an episode where you're having intimate conversations, where I'm learning the internal motivations of Galadriel, of Theo, of Bronwyn, then that's great. I'm I'm all in for that. I just didn't think that we got that. Um, I here's here's something I want to put off for the for the season wrap up. Did we need the new menor plot line at all this season?
2: Ooh, did we? I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about that. Maybe we'll talk about that in the wrap up.
1: Yeah, yeah. So write in, write in if you got opinions, Mike. I don't mean to 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 fight your opinion too much. I uh, all I'll say is I appreciate your feedback. I I stand by my criticisms, and I hope you enjoyed the praise this episode.
2: All right. Last up, we have Kevin, who posted something on Twitter, uh, and it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a big, big statement here. I'm going to need you. This is uh, directed at at Bald Move. I'm going to need you and the Lorehounds to deeply dive into why Galadriel knew it was Sauron and then went ahead with the rings plan and even added a ring. I simply don't understand why she did that and why she told nobody. Shame? Greed? Considering Sauron's deal? What? John, that is a huge topic right there. Should we dive in?
1: Yeah. Um, So this isn't even a lore thing. I think this is just a, a storytelling motivations thing. So what do you think, David?
2: I have not decided on where I am with that. Gilglad, you know there was they, they had their little meeting, which she got off light. <laughs> she got off with one comment from from old Gil. There, he was like, "You're not even supposed to be here." So I don't know what you're saying, um, <laughs> but uh, they are under threat of 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 um, being taken away from Middle Earth. It's a very serious issue. They're they're sort of fighting for their lives. Does she recognize that? Is she wooed by the power that she perceives is as available in the rings? So I think her motivations must be complex. It's not simple. Um, and I think, I think you put your, uh, Kevin, I think you put your finger on it in shame, greed. We know that she um, has an interest in ruling canonically. She sees herself as a future leader and wants to explore that. Um, was she wooed by Sauron? Absolutely. Uh, Sauron was putting some serious moves on her, and it says something that if Celebrimbor can be corrupted, but she was able to withstand his advances on a, with a much higher stakes being offered, she's a powerful person. She is a powerful person to be able to see through that. Why did she go ahead with the ring plan? I think it has to do with survival. Yeah. This was
1: a necessity decision, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, and I think that you can rationalize it as this. She comes in. She says, hey, let's not do his plan. Let's not do two because two will divide. And that's a Sauron thing. Let's add a ring. And then maybe it's far enough away from his plan to where, uh, you know, it'll work. And again, if you go with the show's explanation of Mithril... Then that's the light of the trees. That is an inherently good thing. Right. And so maybe she's trusting in, you know, if we do it only, if we don't let Sauron in the room, and if we change the plan to where it's three, and we're using this light of the trees, maybe it'll be okay, and maybe this'll help. Because obviously, if you're taking the show at face value, they need to do something, otherwise the elves are gonna fade. Now, again, I've I've said my piece about the timeline of the elves fading and their its relationship with the Silmaril's. All those issues aside, if you're taking the show at face value, then they need to do something. So this is a decision out of necessity.
2: And we've gotten some feedback where people are saying, well, oh, was this uh, Anatar Sauron, you know, setting up uh, a false narrative to trick Gilgalad and, and the uh, the other elves into the fact that they're, you know, did, did he... Is the 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 tree losing its leaves you know did he poison it somehow? Is there some sort of uh mirage that's happening um, that's tricking them, or is this something that's real that's happening outside of everyone else's control? I, I think when we set those issues aside and we look at the face value, yeah the the elves are in a perilous position here, and so they've like you said it's it's necessity. I think. There is some shame here when, <laughs> oh man, it was so good. Elrond gives her a little look that he's got the scroll and she's like, oh shit, like I've been found out, but we've got to go for this. We still got to go for this. We're still here in this, in this position. Um, I think there is some shame there in that she got tricked. She was the tool of Sauron for a big chunk of this season
1: ron respect your mother-in-law. You know, don't call her on this. <laughs> Let's, uh, you know, be, be nice. A good relationship with your in-laws is important, Alron.
2: Very important, yeah. And how good are these two actors? The, the chemistry between them I'm really enjoying, and, and I love their performance. And just that little look between them was just, mm, chef's kiss. Yep. All right, that's the last of our feedback. Thanks everyone for sticking through uh on this uh extra juicy extra long episode. We're going to have another uh good solid one when we drop our uh season wrap up and our conversation with Marilyn. Some programming reminders. Uh John, we've got Andor coming up. We're going to do 3 episodes, right? we're going to three podcasts
1: at least three, three. At least three. Right. let's let's see what the reception is i mean i'm i'd be open to to maybe expanding that a little bit if we're getting a lot of feedback if we're if we're going places with it so at least three we're going to do
2: so we're going to try to do one episode that's going to cover the first six and then we'll we'll sort of go from there so keep an eye on our feed for that After that, kind of overlapping, uh, I think we've got our season two of White Lotus coverage coming up. And when do we have, when's our first drop date for that?
1: Yeah, so the White Lotus episodes are going to come out the Tuesday after every episode. And so the first episode is October 30th. So the first podcast should come out on November 1st.
2: And so they're slipping White Lotus in there right behind House of the Dragon on that Sunday night, 9 p.m. time slot. Right. That's a a prime time for appointment TV. And then lastly, as we talked about um, Wheel of Time, full coverage on that, lore breakdowns, episode reactions. We just don't know when they're going to be releasing. Uh, And as soon as we know something, we'll let you all know. Now, I want to add to...
1: A lot of people dip out after the last episode podcast on a season and don't go to the season wrap up. But here's my pitch for you to come back. Okay. Is uh, we've been very careful about spoilers all season. Yes. And we will be for the first part of the next podcast as well. However, we're going to do a full spoiler section where we talk about what's in the writings. We speculate on where they're going to go next. We talk about the implications for next of the changes they've made. And we're going to go crazy with it and probably with Marilyn, too.
2: I was envisioning uh, today when I was thinking about the interview with Marilyn that it's going to be like a long walk in the w- <laughs> a long walk in the woods. Like the three of us are just going to wander for a couple of hours out into the wilderness uh, and just having a free flowing conversation. So I don't know if that's even going to be able to fit into one podcast uh, along with a full spoiler uh, 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 takes on on the season. But we've got some juicy content coming up for you. So if you're into it, hang out. Uh, we've got things coming. We'll let you know about the Patreon as well once we get that up and running if you're interested in uh, ad-free versions of our podcasts. All right. Very good. John, anything else?
1: Thanks for being with us on this ride. I mean, it's been it's been crazy. We intended to do just the, the preview season first, and it's ended up blowing up to be something that is out of our control at this point. So uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for being here with Lorehounds Worldwide. And uh, I hope we'll see you on the White Lotus.
2: (laughs) Yeah. John, thanks again for uh, being my partner in all this. And uh, it's good to be back.
1: The Rings of Power Lorecast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage@baldmove.com, or write into Jim and Aaron at doug at BaldMove.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds. And for more Rings of Power content, subscribe to doug deep on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening.